About three decades ago, almost three decades ago, I did a series on Jonah here in Grace Life. And uh, the Grace to You ministry in India published transcripts of those messages in booklet form. They edited it a little bit so that, you know, where I talked about baseball, they talked about cricket and stuff like that. But it was uh, like people always ask me, have you ever written any books? And my answer is no, but they took my sermon series on Jonah and made a pretty nice little uh, commentary on Jonah out of it. And those ran out years ago, but I found one recently and scanned it. So I have a PDF of it if anybody wants it. Just email me and I'll send it to you. But there's also an album of CDs with, with those messages on Jonah that have been on the table on the back for years. And uh, those are some of the oldest recordings we have here in Grace Life. Those are some of the earliest messages I ever gave when I started teaching here. And we have a, occasionally revisited incidents in the life of Jonah from time to time. And I don't want to go back to the Old Testament book of Jonah this morning, but I do want to consider Jonah again, this time from the perspective of what Jesus said about him in the New Testament. Jesus mentioned Jonah on two crucial occasions. Both of them were during public conflicts that he had with the Pharisees. The first one is during a major conflict over the Pharisees' Sabbath rules in Matthew chapter 12. And that's where we're going to go first. So if you want to turn to Matthew 12. But then shortly after that, in Matthew 16, Jesus repeats what he said about Jonah in Matthew 12. And in both places, the Pharisees demanded that Jesus give them a sign to prove his authority over them. And he rebuked them for... Their stubborn unbelief. He told them that they would receive no sign from him except for the sign of Jonah. And the first of those two incidents, by the way, is also recorded in Luke 11, which describes the same event, actually, as Matthew 12. Luke 11, Matthew 12 are, are covering the same incident. So basically, you'll find three places in the Gospels where Jesus speaks of Jonah And those three passages describe actually just two incidents, two distinct incidents. And in each case, Jesus spoke of the sign of Jonah. Now, most of you, I think, will be vaguely familiar with those references. And if I asked you, what is the sign of Jonah? I think most of you would say it's the resurrection of Christ. And that's true. That's a good, right answer. There's more to it than that, but that that part of it is right. Jesus said in Matthew 12, 40, just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days, three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So he was clearly speaking of his death and resurrection and making a comparison between the crucifixion resurrection event and Jonah's experience in the belly of the fish. After three days and three nights, of course, Jonah emerged alive and Jesus' resurrection would be similar and yet a much greater miracle. Uh, And there's a true sense in which the resurrection would be a sign to the Pharisees in particular because the resurrection is the visible evidentiary proof that the Pharisees were demanding when they said, prove to us that you are who you say that you are. Jesus proved it by his resurrection. That was his ultimate proof. He had already proved it in many other ways, but he proved it in a distinctive and irrefutable way by rising from the dead. But for these religious leaders who had so misled the Jewish nation and so much tyrannized people with their man-made traditions, the resurrection of Jesus was actually a sign of judgment. And here's what I don't want you to miss. The, The resurrection per se, is only one narrow aspect of the the sign, the big sign that Jesus is talking about here. The full significance of the sign of Jonah was much deeper and more ominous than you might realize. This was more than merely a prophecy about the resurrection. It was that, but it was more than that. It was a message of condemnation for the Pharisees and, and their whole system of religion. Jonah, you know, had been used by God as an instrument of blessing to a whole nation of pagan Gentiles. And you you remember the story that through Jonah's preaching, God brought revival to Nineveh, 
which was the most wicked city in the world at the time. And, and this was a display, a purposeful display of sovereign grace that prefigured the work of the gospel, reaching out to Gentiles, redeeming publicans and sinners, but bypassing those who held the self-righteous and self-aggrandizing religion of the Pharisees. In the words of Romans 9.18, God has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he desires. And furthermore, he is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And all of that is implicit in the sign of Jonah. This was a sign of judgment against the Pharisees. And Jesus is pointing to Jonah as a type or a symbol, a type, you know, that word when you use it in this kind of context about biblical pictures, it's a type is a biblical symbol that foreshadows something yet to come. And usually Jesus himself is the fulfillment of that type. And the Old Testament is actually full of typology and all of it ultimately pointed to Christ. A type, I'll give you a definition, it's a divine foreshadowing of some greater truth. It's, it's a kind of prophetic picture. And the Old Testament is full of these, and in some cases, real-life people. In other cases, the type is a tangible, visible item that foreshadowed Christ in some way. For example, the high priest was a type. He was a, a living symbol of Christ, who is our great high priest, according to Hebrews 4.14, and the tabernacle itself and, uh, and the priestly worship, the, the furniture in the tabernacle even, full of types and figures that symbolically foreshadowed some aspect of Christ's character or his offices or his atoning sacrifice. Uh, you know, the high priest entered once a year into the Holy of Holies with a sacrifice of blood, and that prefigured the work of Christ who would enter into the very presence of God, Scripture says, once for all, by his own blood. That's Hebrews 10. And so the entire Old Testament is peppered with types and symbols that point us to Christ. And these are deliberate prophetic symbols that tie the different parts of God's revelation together and show us its inspiration. They show us that the mind of God is the only explanation for how all of this was put together. The sheer number of foreshadowings and prophetic references to Christ in the Old Testament is one of the most graphic and vivid evidences that although Scripture was written over several centuries' time by multiple human authors and in dozens of disparate parts, nevertheless, Scripture tells one story with one central theme, and Christ is the central character of all of it. So the Bible is clearly the work of a single divine mind. I have told you my testimony before how any question I had about the authority of Scripture was immediately and forever erased when I saw that Isaiah 53, a prophecy written some six to 800 years before Christ, told in graphic detail about his crucifixion. Only the mind of God could foresee and so completely foreshadow such a truth. And the New Testament unfolds the meanings of all of those types and prophecies in such a way that if you examine Scripture carefully with an open mind and an unbiased mind, you'll, you'll have to admit that it is not just remarkable, it's practically irrefutable that the Bible is a supernatural book and it bears all the marks of divine inspiration. And anyway, according to Jesus, Jonah was one of the most important Old Testament types, which is interesting because Jonah is the one all the, all the liberal scholars want to write off. They look at this miracle of Jonah being swallowed by a fish and kept alive in there, and they say, that's impossible. Well, yeah, that's what makes it miraculous. That's the definition of a miracle, something that would be physically and, and naturally impossible happens, and it happened with Jonah, And he becomes one of the most important Old Testament types. Despite his rebellion against God, he's a living picture of Christ who went into a death-like darkness for three days and three nights and then emerged miraculously alive. And Jonah, in fact, is the predominant Old Testament picture of the resurrection. But here's my point this morning. 
The full meaning of the sign of the prophet Jonah, when Jesus says to the Pharisees, you're going to get a sign, and it's the sign of the prophet Jonah, the full meaning of that is deeper and more multifaceted and more ominous than just the truth of the resurrection. When Jesus refers to the sign of Jonah, the sign he has in mind involves much, much more than just a simple picture of his resurrection. And the significance of it was actually more negative than positive. Looking beyond Resurrection Sunday to the day of the Lord and the judgment that's yet to come. So bear that in mind. This is a somber message of warning to the unbelieving and rebellious Pharisees. And they would have been, of course, intimately familiar with the story of Jonah. They knew very well that Jonah was unique among the Old Testament prophets because God sent him on a mission of mercy and grace to a Gentile nation during a time of great apostasy and rebellion in Israel. And that fact could not have escaped these particular Pharisees who were challenging Jesus. His his mention of Jonah meant something very specific to them, and they must have felt the sting of it unless they you know, were so totally dull uh, spiritually that they, they missed the whole point. I, I doubt that that's the case. But just in case they did miss the point, Jesus underscores it for them when he says in Matthew 12, 41, the men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it. Now, as I said, there are three places in the Gospels where Jesus refers to the sign of Jonah the prophet. If you want to write these down, they're Matthew 12, verses 39 through 41, and Matthew 16, verse 4, two of them in Matthew, and then Luke 11, verses 29 through 32. And the one I want to concentrate on this morning is going to be the Luke 11 passage, but let me give you the full context first with a look at these two Matthew passages. So if you're not in Matthew 12, turn there. Matthew 12, 39. And there are several things significant about this passage. First of all, notice that Jesus regards Jonah as a historical person, and he interprets the narrative of Jonah as real history. You can't listen to what Jesus has to say about this and conclude that Jonah was just a fable, that this didn't really happen. Jesus says it does. It, it did. It's, it's not merely a, an allegory or a symbolic tale. This is significant because really for the past two and a half centuries or so, Jonah has been targeted by critics, biblical critics, who want to question whether Scripture's really inspired by God. And so skeptics and scoffers of all kinds have attacked the book of Jonah, maybe more than any other Old Testament book, they've attacked it on rationalistic grounds. And even some Bible commentators and, and preachers who claim to believe the Bible is God's word have suggested that, you know, maybe the account of Jonah and the fish is an example of myth or allegory. And the faith of a lot of Christians have, over the past two centuries or so, have been shaken by that kind of tinkering with the meaning of the Bible. But here is unshakable proof that the Old Testament account of Jonah is historical narrative. It is not merely symbolism. Here's how we know that it's supposed to be taken literally. Jesus himself took it literally. So look at the passage. Matthew 12, we'll start in verse 38. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered and said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation eagerly seeks for a sign, and yet no sign shall be given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Now, notice what's happening here. Jesus did not do miracles and signs and wonders on demand. He had already given these people plenty of signs that he was the Messiah. They had enough to know this. They had seen him heal people. He had cast out demons. He had fed the multitudes. 
now that what they're asking for, what the, the Pharisees are demanding here, is an even bigger miracle. They wanted some sort of cosmic sign. You know, could he make the sun go dark? Or, or could he cause the stars to fall? Or something like that. Skepticism is the thing that is motivating this challenge to Jesus. This is not a sincere inquiry. They're not asking him to heal someone out of compassion. They're, they're demanding proof, bigger proof than he had given them already. How do you know that? Well, it's clear from this passage, maybe more than any other place in the Gospels, that these scribes and Pharisees had already made up their minds that they, they were going to hate Jesus no matter what he did. They were already conspiring to put him to death. Verse 14 says so explicitly. The Pharisees took counsel together against him as to how they might destroy him. So that was their aim. They wanted to destroy him. They would not have affirmed him no matter what kind of sign he might have done for them. And in fact, look at the immediate context here. And bear in mind, this passage parallels the Luke 11 passage, which is where we're headed. Both of these passages describe the exact same incident. And here's what is happening. Matthew is relating the far-reaching and spectacular success of the healing ministry of Jesus. And suddenly, against that backdrop, as he's describing these healing miracles, he highlights also the hateful opposition that Jesus incurred from the Pharisees. And in this chapter, he recounts several significant healings. There's the man with a withered hand in verses 10 through 13. And you recall how that incident became controversial because it occurred on the Sabbath. And that was a particular embarrassment to the Pharisees because by their reckoning, it would be a sin to heal on the Sabbath. You know, they were, you know, the strictest kind of Sabbatarians, and, and everyone knew their position on this, but they had no valid argument against Jesus when he asked, is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath? And so he healed the man in their presence purposely to violate their rules and to make the point that he is Lord of the Sabbath. And it is precisely at that point in the Gospel of Matthew where these religious leaders' hatred of Christ takes a really sinister turn. Verse 14, going out, the Pharisees took counsel together against him as to how they might destroy him. They, they were determined to get rid of him no matter what. He was a threat to their power structure. In fact, John 11 describes the counsel that they convened about this. John eleven forty seven. it says, the chief priests and Pharisees gathered the Sanhedrin together and were saying, what are we doing? For this man is doing many great signs. So they had seen his power. They had all the supernatural signs that they needed. They had no reason to doubt him or reject him, except what troubled them was he posed a threat to their rulership. And in verse 48 of John 11, they go on to say this. If we let him go on like this, all will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. So it's clear that what they actually feared here were the political ramifications if people accepted Jesus as Messiah. They had a lot to lose if, if Jesus upset the balance of power with the Roman government, so they rejected him. And their rejection of him is deliberate and final and they'd already made it themselves publicly his enemy. There's no coming back from this, and Jesus says so. And so he took his healing ministry to more private venues. Back to Matthew 12, verse 15. Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there. Many followed him, and he healed them all and warned them not to make him known. This, by the way, is an expression of the sheer goodness of Jesus' grace and compassion. He's not healing merely for show. He's not putting on a, a performance. And in fact, he refused to do that. He is healing because he is genuinely concerned for people's needs. And his healings reflect a real love and tenderness. This is not merely a way to demonstrate publicly his power. Matthew underscores Jesus' tender compassion with that quote from Isaiah in verses 18 through 21, where he says, you know, that he won't break the, 
the bruised reed or quench the smoking flax, which is a way of saying he'll restore that which is blemished or useless rather than simply discarding stuff as if it was trash. He, he is merciful beyond anything we can imagine, and that mercy is an expression of the tender, compassionate heart of Christ. He's, he's healing people because he loves them, and this is real. It's not for show. And so when it became too dangerous for him to perform these healings in public, Scripture says he withdrew, and he would heal people privately. And notice, he healed them all. How many people he healed, we have no clue. But verse 15 says, many followed him, and he healed all of them. And remember, the apostle John indicates that the New Testament records really only a tiny fraction of the miracles that Jesus did while he was here on earth. John says at the end of his gospel, John 21, 25, there are also many other things which Jesus did, which if they were written one after another, I suppose even the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. So this was a widespread, far-reaching ministry of healing in which he healed everyone who came to him for healing. B.B. Warfield said this about Jesus' healing ministry. Warfield wrote, When our Lord came down to earth, he drew heaven with him. The signs which accompanied his ministry were but trailing clouds of glory which he brought from heaven, which is his home. The number of the miracles which he wrought may be easily underrated. It has been said that, in effect, he banished disease and death from the land of Israel for the three years of his ministry. And Warfield says, if this is exaggeration, it is pardonable exaggeration, because wherever he went, he brought a blessing. And even though nearly all of those healings were done outside the public arena, Jesus' reputation begins to spread, and the Pharisees become more and more antagonistic. And then in verse 22 here, Matthew describes how Jesus healed a demon-possessed man who was both blind and mute. And so this is a remarkable miracle because it's a kind of triple miracle because the man's muteness was healed, his blindness was healed, and he was freed from demonic control. And furthermore, this healing took place in front of multiple witnesses. And verse 23 says, uh, crowds of witnesses, all the crowds were astounded, and they began to apply messianic titles to Jesus. Can this man really be the son of David? Son of David, that's a messianic title. So this is a spectacular public display of Jesus' divine authority. And verse 24 says the Pharisees heard about it almost immediately. And in fact, from Luke's account, it appears that some of the Pharisees were already there. They were actual witnesses to this this miracle, or perhaps someone ran and got them immediately. And these religious elitists conferred amongst themselves and having already determined that they're going to destroy Jesus if they can, verse 14, they give their verdict, verse 24. When the Pharisees heard this, they said, this man does not cast out demons except by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. In other words, what he's doing is satanic. And they deliberately attributed to, to Satan the works that the Holy Spirit was doing through Jesus, and they knew better. They knew this was a lie, but they wanted to deceive people. So this is a deliberate blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And this is that famous passage then. We've looked at it in the past, I think in a three-part series I did once. This is where Matthew recounts Jesus' words about the unpardonable sin, this sin that they are committing by seeking to discredit and destroy Jesus is unpardonable. There's a whole other, like I said, series of sermons on that. You can listen to the recordings of those messages if you go online and look for them. But the bottom line lesson is this. The key factor that made this sin unpardonable was their deliberate opposition to Christ in spite of the fact that they actually believed or they had every reason to believe that he was indeed the true Messiah of God. They knew this, intellectually anyway. And yet for political and pragmatic reasons, they opposed him anyway. It was a conscious and deliberate decision 
that they made, and it was this deliberate opposition to Christ in the full light of who he was, that's what made their sin unforgivable. And so Jesus warns the people about the unpardonable nature of the Pharisees' sins, and he uses the harshest kind of language here to address the Pharisees directly in verse 34. He says to them, you brood of vipers, how can you, being evil, speak what is good? For the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. And he informs them that they are going to face a very harsh judgment for this willful sin. And it is at that point in this argument where the Pharisees ask him, for a sign. Verse 38, then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered and said to him, teacher, we want to see a sign from you. You know, you're condemning us. You're threatening us with judgment. Show us a great cosmic sign that we should believe. So this is a sneering, cynical request, and it is full of contempt and willful unbelief. Remember, he'd just done this spectacular triple miracle right before their eyes. He cast out a demons. He opened a man's eyes. He loosed his tongue. And this was not alone. He had performed many miracles, multitudes of healings that were known and seen by many people. And the masses at this point, the, the people had very little question about the authenticity and the authority of Christ. It was only the Pharisees who demanded more proof. The fact is, they already had plenty of signs if they only had eyes to see. But they had purposely shut their eyes to it. And what they're asking Jesus for here is something even greater than the miracles that he's standing right there doing. And in fact, in the parallel passage, Luke 11, verse 16, Luke tells us they were seeking from him a sign from heaven. So what they wanted was a sign of astronomical proportions, a sign in the heavens, maybe some cosmic miracle along the lines of what was prophesied by Joel in Joel 2.31 when Joel says the sun will be turned to darkness and the moon into blood. They're, They're basically saying, do that. Turn the sun to darkness and turn the moon to blood. They wanted proof on their own terms. And they, because they'd rejected all the evidence that Jesus had placed before their very eyes, and now they're claiming to be willing to believe if He would submit to their demands and produce the kind of evidence they demanded. This is really brash of them. And and this demand for a sign becomes from them a frequent taunt that they aimed at Jesus. Luke uses a verb tense that emphasizes the relentless way they hounded him with this dare over and over. Luke says they were constantly seeking from him a sign from heaven. But that kind of attitude is the very essence of unbelief. They're not looking for a reason to believe. They're challenging him because they want to cast doubt in other people's minds. They are already so determined in their opposition that no matter what evidence he gave them, no evidence whatsoever would have turned their hearts away from their unbelief. And that's why Jesus says, your sin is unpardonable. He knew they would never turn from unbelief. And so he flatly refuses to produce a heavenly sign on demand, and he tells them instead, verse 39, an evil and adulterous generation eagerly seeks for a sign, and yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. In other words, he's saying to them, okay, you'll have your sign, but it's going to come on my terms and in my time. I'm not going to do signs on demand for an evil and adulterous generation but keep your eyes open for the sign of Jonah. And here's a clue about the sign, verse 40. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. He's, of course, talking about the resurrection. And here's an interesting footnote. In the Gospel of John, when Jesus is challenged to produce a sign, he gives a similar response without mentioning Jonah. In John chapter 2, verses 18 and 19, the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us as your authority for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this sanctuary, and in three days I'll raise it up. That, of course, is also a reference to the resurrection. And so the resurrection of Christ is a significant, unparalleled sign. Here is a miracle that involves no human agency, 
There's no explanation for it except divine power. You know, healings can be attributed to psychological causes or natural processes. Even signs in the heaven can be written off as, you know, normal phenomena. People are always trying to explain what the star of Bethlehem was with, with you know, some kind of astronomical phenomenon. You have eclipses, the conjunction of planets, and all, all that sort of stuff. But if there's a resurrection from the dead... That must be the work of God, and the resurrection of Christ, which was foretold by him repeatedly, proved conclusively that he is everything he ever claimed to be. He's the, it's the only sign God actually ever needed to confirm and affirm that Jesus is his son, because any other sign would be anticlimactic. But as I said at the outset, the sign of Jonah is actually more complex than the resurrection alone. This is a multifaceted sign, and the resurrection is at the heart of it, but there's more. And for this, we turn to the passage that, uh, that I think will consume our attention for the remainder of this morning, and that's the Gospel of Luke chapter 11. Luke 11, beginning at verse 29, and this is a, a cross-reference. This is the same incident described by Luke this time. It exactly parallels Matthew 12, the passage we've been looking at. So you have that fuller context from Matthew, but here's the same event from Luke's account, verses 29 through 32. Now, as the crowds were increasing, he began to say, this generation is a wicked generation. It seeks a sign, and yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah. For just as Jonah became a sign to the Ninevites, so will the Son of Man be to this generation." The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Now, I hope you notice, if you're paying attention here, the significant thing that jumps out at me is that in Luke's account here, there is no explicit mention of the resurrection or no mention of Jonah's three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster. Luke actually bypasses, or more likely, he assumes the point about the resurrection, but he probes into some deeper aspects of this sign, the sign of the prophet Jonah. I've been saying this is a multifaceted sign. Luke highlights for us three aspects of it. It involves a message, it involves a miracle, and it involves a man. So we'll examine those one at a time, starting with the message. Again, Luke omits the part about the Son of Man being three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And some commentators have suggested that's a discrepancy in the two accounts. Because Matthew explains the sign of Jonah as a, resurre- as a reference to the resurrection, but Luke seems to draw this parallel between the ministry of, of Jonah and the ministry of Christ. Verse 34, just as Jonah became a sign to the Ninevites, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. Now think this through. How was Jonah a sign to the Ninevites? It's, the answer is simple because Jonah is a pretty simple book. Jonah was a sign because he preached repentance to them. That's all he preached. Nineveh is 600 miles from the ocean where Jonah was spit out from that fish. And in all likelihood, no one from Nineveh actually saw the fish regurgitate the prophet. And there's no hint in the book of Jonah that the Ninevites even knew about Jonah's ride in the belly of the fish. Jonah just showed up in Nineveh one day and began preaching repentance, and it was in that capacity that he was assigned to the Ninevites. It wasn't about the fish. It was about his message. And Luke underscores this in verse 32. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. It's as if Jesus is saying, look, the Ninevites didn't have any heavenly signs. 
What they got was a simple, straightforward message of repentance, a call to repent from a bedraggled prophet, and they repented at that. They had no display of miracles. They had no signs and wonders to to startle them out of their unbelief, and yet they repented at Jonah's message. The Pharisees had already seen an incomparably greater display of miracles miracles than anyone in Nineveh had ever seen. And as a matter of fact, in the history of the world, there's never been a, a, a display of miracles like Jesus had given these Pharisees. No one had ever come to Jesus for healing whom he couldn't heal. He healed them all, Scripture says. And yet, these Pharisees refused to believe in him. And therefore, the Ninevites who repented when they heard the message of repentance, they, Jesus says, will stand in judgment against the unbelieving Pharisees of Jesus' generation. So this is a deep rebuke with several layers, and all of them answer the Pharisees' demand for a sign. Their challenge to Jesus was to produce a sign. This is simply an excuse for their unbelief. But it wouldn't work as an excuse before the throne of God because the Ninevites who repented without a sign would be there at the judgment seat to testify against these unbelieving Pharisees who rejected Christ in spite of a plethora of proofs and evidences that he had given to them. This is a very strong rebuke from the lips of Jesus. And it goes well with those words about unpardonable sin. Explains what he's talking about there. By the way, some of the harshest rebukes in Scripture are aimed at the kind of unbelief that demands a sign. It justifies its doubt and skepticism by demanding, show me a sign. Paul wrote, and we heard it this morning in the Scripture reading, 1 Corinthians 1.22, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block and to the Gentiles foolishness. Have you ever thought about what that verse is saying? And it makes Paul sound a little bit like a contrarian. He's saying the Jews demand a sign, but we give them a stumbling block. The Greeks demand wisdom and profound philosophy. What we give them is foolishness. It's like he's doing the opposite of what people demand, just like Jesus did here. Why? Because The power of the gospel is in the message itself. The gospel is the power of God for salvation. For those who have ears to hear, and those who refuse to hear will not be able to excuse their own unbelief by hiding behind a demand for signs and wonders. But that doesn't exclude signs and wonders altogether. Hebrews 2, verses 3 and 4 says that the gospel message first spoken by the Lord was confirmed to us by those who heard God also testifying with them both by signs and wonders and by various miracles. So here's point two of my outline. The sign of Jonah involved a miracle. It involved a message and it involved a miracle. And there is an undeniable miraculous element in the sign of Jonah the prophet. In Jonah, the type This involved being preserved three days and three nights in the belly of a great fish. In Christ, the antitype, it involves his emergence from the heart of the earth from where he came forth alive after being in the grave for days. And Matthew made his meaning about this explicit. Luke's account merely implies it in verse 29 when Jesus says, no sign will be given except one. We noted in verse 16 that the Pharisees were asking for a miracle of astronomical proportions. They wanted one of those earth-shaking, sort of vast, undeniable miracles, so that, you know, the sort of great miracle that nobody could ever deny. They would have that kind of miracle, but only after their their rebellious unbelief had reached the point where they, they put their own Messiah to death. And the miracle was they couldn't keep him there. And so when the sign they asked for eventually came, these guys were so hardened that they still refused to heed. Christ emerged from the belly of the earth after three days and three nights. Multitudes in Jerusalem did believe. On the day of Pentecost alone, you have 3,000 souls added to the church. 
But most of the Jewish leaders, these scribes and Pharisees, this sect of power-mongering religious guys, who the ones who had opposed Jesus during his earthly life with such stubborn unbelief, those men continued in their unbelief, and they rejected even the resurrected Christ. You remember that incident shortly after Pentecost when Peter and John healed a lame man at the gate of the temple, and Peter preached a remarkable sermon in which he demonstrated that all of the Old Testament prophets had pointed to Christ. Acts chapter 4 verse 1 says, Now, as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to them being greatly agitated because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead, and they laid hands on them and put them in jail until the next day. It's the same guys, basically, or at least members of the same cult of power-mongering religious leaders, so that even when they got the miraculous sign they demanded, they refused to believe. They were imprisoned in their own hard-hearted unbelief, and that's why their sin was unpardonable. Now, I said there's a third aspect to the sign of Jonah the prophet. The first is the message. The second is the miracle. Third, and maybe most important, is the man himself. These Jewish leaders were in danger of hardening their hearts to the point where they were they would be impervious to any sign or wonder. And so Jesus points them back to the guy who was really the most hard-hearted prophet of all, the most rebellious Old Testament prophet in the whole group, Jonah. Jonah, the man, was the only sign God gave to the Ninevites. As I said, the closest beach to Nineveh is hundreds of miles away to the west, and so the people of Nineveh did not personally witness Jonah's emergence from the fish, but they surely knew what had happened to him, or they learned about it in due time, Here was a man who, having been thrown off a ship in the midst of a violent storm, should have died. And so he came to them as one coming back from the dead. He's a a living token of God's power. Different commentators, some of them suggest that Jonah actually did die in the belly of the fish and he was resurrected. I don't don't think that's what Scripture teaches. In fact, Jonah chapter 2 tells us what he prayed while he was in the belly of the fish. So he wasn't dead while he was in there. How you pray in an environment like that, I don't know. And I don't want to find out, just for the record. But what's important here is Jonah was a Jewish prophet, and the Jews were the enemies of the Assyrians. And so Jonah's presence in Nineveh, a Jewish prophet preaching repentance to the nation's greatest enemies... This signified a remarkable superhuman boldness. And so Jonah's ministry in Nineveh was a living display of the power of God. And notice the language in, you're still in Luke 11, verse 30. Just as Jonah became a sign to the Ninevites, so will the son be to this generation. So here, the sign is the man, not the resurrection, not merely the resurrection, but the man himself The stress there is on Jonah, who as a man was assigned to Nineveh, and the parallel is Christ, the man, as assigned to this generation. He signifies the the very embodiment of the power of God displayed graphically by his resurrection from the dead, and he is set before us as a sign of God's resurrection power, and each of us is faced with the very same choice as the Ninevites, persist in unrepentant unbelief and be destroyed, or you can repent and believe and receive the mercy of God. Christ himself, crucified and risen from the dead, is the sign of Jonah the prophet. His message of repentance and the miracle of his resurrection are important aspects of that sign, but it is the man Christ Jesus, the person him, a person of Christ himself. He is the one who embodies the sign of Jonah the prophet. Christ is the sign. Christ, as Simeon prophesied at his birth, Luke 2.34, behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel and for a sign to be opposed. He is the sign. 
Now, and listen carefully, this sign, Christ, is as crucial to me and you as it was to the scribes and Pharisees in whose hearing Jesus first spoke those words. I want you to notice how he expounds on the warning that he's giving to the scribes and Pharisees. He cites two examples of Old Testament Gentiles who responded with faith when they were given just a minimal amount of light. Verse 31, the queen of the south. Who is that? That's the queen of Sheba in Solomon's time. It says, she will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. So here's the point. The wisdom of Solomon was enough to attract the queen of Sheba from a long distance. She got no sign from heaven. She had very little light and yet her response signified true faith. How much more accountable are those who've had exposure to the great, infinitely greater wisdom of Christ, accompanied by the sign of his resurrection from the dead? How could they still stay in unbelief? The Queen of Sheba will stand in judgment against them, against all of those who demand more light, and nobody is going to be able to plead that the light was not bright enough or the sign wasn't convincing enough because the conversion of the Queen of Sheba destroys that claim. She had no light, she had very little light, and and no sign. And yet she repented. Verse 32, the men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, because they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. These people repented at the preaching of Jonah, who merely escaped death, and who brought them a message of condemnation, and they repented. So how much more accountable will those people be who reject Christ, who actually rose from the dead, and they refuse to repent at his gospel of grace and compassion? We, you and I, have been given superior light. The wisdom of the gospel alone should be sufficient to awaken a humble response in all of us, faith. And failing that, we have the testimony of a a Savior who has risen from the dead, and multiple eyewitnesses confirmed it. To whom much is given, much shall be required. And we live in an age where skepticism is popular. Uh, I constantly run into people who imagine that, you know, they're wiser than God. You hear people who who, like the Pharisees, say, convince me and then I'll believe. That is the most ignorant of all unbelief because the demand for proof destroys the possibility of faith. Romans 8, 24, in hope we are saved, but hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he already sees? There will come a time when our faith will be swallowed up by sight, but for now, we're called to walk by faith, not by sight. And yet, Scripture says, the things we lay hold of by faith are more lasting than the things we can apprehend with our literal sight. 2 Corinthians 4.18, we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. They last longer than everything you see around you. And the demand for proof destroys the possibility of saving faith. It's not a valid excuse for unbelief. There is no excuse for unbelief. No one will stand in the judgment and be able to justify unbelief by claiming I didn't have sufficient proof or the evidence was inadequate because multitudes who have repented with far less light will testify against those who remain in unbelief against God as they stand before his throne. We looked at this, I think the last time I spoke here, Hebrews 11, verse 1. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. The, The quest for confirming signs and wonders ends where real faith begins. Signs and wonders have their place, but faith doesn't require them. Jesus said to Thomas, Because you have seen me, you believed? Blessed are those who did not see, and yet they believed. 
and a lack of confirming signs and wonders is not an excuse for unbelief. We have the gospel of a risen Savior. That is a far brighter light than the preaching of Jonah brought to the city of Nineveh. And yet those people repented. God will hold us accountable for what we do with the greater light he has given us. And I'd be remiss in a message like this not to spell out as clearly as possible what the gospel message is. This is the message in a nutshell. Christ died as a sin bearer, although he himself was totally sinless, absolutely perfect, perfectly holy before God. Even though all of that was true, God punished him on the cross with the full penalty of sin, which means an outpouring of divine wrath. God, in that eternal moment on the cross, turned away from his son, and the full penalty of our guilt was laid on Christ. As the Old Testament had prophesied, Isaiah 53, verses 5 and 6, he was pierced through for our transgression. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our peace fell upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but Yahweh has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He bore our sins and paid the penalty for them. And we who trust him reap the merit of his perfect righteousness. Scripture says in Romans 4 verse 5, to the one who believes upon him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. And thus, God redeems all of those who turn to Christ alone as their Savior, not because of anything they do to merit the favor of God, not because, because no sinner could ever earn that kind of merit anyway, but God redeems us because of what Christ has done on our behalf. And we lay hold of that forgiveness by faith. And so I urge you this morning to be like the Ninevites who lay hold, laid hold of the dim light that was offered to them and repented from their sin and unbelief, and they stepped into the bright light of divine grace by faith alone. That kind of forgiveness and salvation is available to all of us through Christ. And so the sign of the prophet Jonah is either a sign of condemnation to those who persist in unbelief or a sign of salvation to those who do believe. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for so much gospel truth that you've given us. And yet we are mindful of the reality that from everyone who has been given much, much will be required. We, we do at times tend to harden our own hearts out of sinful or self-serving motives. May your spirit through the word melt that hardness, amplify our faith, increase our assurance, give us more love for Christ, and may we live in obedience to your word for the glory of our Savior, the Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. You have been listening to pastor and teacher Phil Johnson. For more information about the ministry of the Grace Life Pulpit, visit at www.thegracelifepulpit.com. Copyright by Phil Johnson, all rights reserved.